I am back with David White. David, thanks for joining me again. My pleasure. Good to be with you again, Sam. So we have another installment of your um, your essays from Consolations in Waking Up, and uh, today I thought we'd speak about three or four of them. And I'd like to start with anger. Yes. These are related topics here. We've got anger, forgiveness, despair, and maturity. And we'll see if we get to despair or, or skip over it. But um, anger and forgiveness and maturity are very closely linked in my mind. So um, let's just jump in. Let's listen to anger. Anger might be the deepest form of care for another for the world, for the self, for a life, for the body, for a family, and for all our ideals, all vulnerable and all possibly about to be hurt. Anger might be the deepest form of care for another, for the world, for the self, for a life, for the body, for a family and for all our ideals, all vulnerable and all possibly about to be hurt, stripped of physical imprisonment and violent reaction, anger always points toward the purest form of compassion. The internal living flame of anger always illuminates what we belong to, what we wish to protect and what we are willing to hazard ourselves for. What we usually call anger is only what is left of its essence when it reaches the lost surface of our mind or our body's incapacity to hold it or the limits of our understanding. What we name as anger is actually only the incoherent physical incapacity to sustain this deep form of care in our outer daily life. The unwillingness to be large enough and generous enough to hold what we love helplessly in our bodies or our mind with the clarity and breadth of our whole being. What we name as anger is actually only the incoherent physical incapacity to sustain this deep form of care in our outer daily life. The unwillingness to be large enough and generous enough to hold what we love helplessly in our bodies or our mind with the clarity and breadth of our whole being. What we have named as anger on the surface is the violent outer response to our own inner powerlessness. What we have named as anger on the surface is the violent outer response to our own inner powerlessness, a powerlessness connected to such a profound sense of rawness and care that it can find no proper outer body or identity or voice or way of life to hold it. What we call anger is often simply the unwillingness to live the full measure of our fears or of our not knowing. In the face of our love for a wife, in the depth of our caring for a son, 
in our wanting the best in the face of simply being alive and loving those with whom we live. Our anger breaks to the surface most often through our feeling there is something profoundly wrong with this powerlessness. Our anger breaks to the surface most often through our feeling that there is something profoundly wrong with our powerlessness and our vulnerability. Anger too often finds its voice strangely through our incoherence and through our inability to speak. But anger in its pure state is the measure of the way we are implicated in the world and made vulnerable through love in all its specifics. A daughter, a house, a family, an enterprise, a land, or a colleague. Anger turns to violence and violent speech when the mind refuses to countenance the vulnerability of the body in its love for all of these outer things. Anger turns to violence and violent speech when the mind refuses to countenance the vulnerability of the body in its love for all of these outer things. We are often abused or have been abused by those who love us but have no vehicle to carry its understanding, who have no outer emblems of their inner care or even their own wanting to be wanted, lacking any outer vehicle for the expression of this inner rawness, they are simply overwhelmed by the elemental nature of love's vulnerability. Lacking any outer vehicle for the expression of this inner rawness, they are simply overwhelmed by the elemental nature of love's vulnerability. In their helplessness, they turn their violence on the very people who are the outer representation of this inner lack of control. Anger truly felt at its center, anger truly felt at its center, is the essential living flame of being fully alive and fully here. It is a quality to be followed to its source, to be prized, to be tended, and an invitation to finding a way to bring that source fully into the world through making the mind clearer and more generous, the heart more compassionate, and the body larger and strong enough to hold it. What we call anger on the surface, what we call anger on the surface, only serves to define its true underlying quality by being a complete and absolute mirror opposite of its true internal essence. You, uh, you I love this because you start with a surprising claim. Uh, you, you talk about anger as a, a form of care and um, pointing to the purest form of compassion. And I think you say it's the essential living flame of being fully alive. And it struck me when I was listening to this that this is almost a, a tantric view of anger. Yes. And uh, it's, it's, it's elevating it to a principle which is quite the opposite of what most people assume, even most practitioners of meditation, uh, that it's that anger is just a 
an intrinsically negative mind state that needs to be expunged, but it is, as you say, a clear indication of caring about something, uh, however misguided that specific framing of that care might be. So just tell me a little bit more about how you think about anger. Well, I thought uh, your description was interesting in, in saying that it's an almost tantric definition. And a tantric definition is always has to do with following something in the body to its root and to its center. Anger almost comes from from not our misunderstanding the place from which this wave of energy is arising inside us. And the place where it's arising from, I do believe, is this deep sense of care that we have for those who surround us, uh, for our world and for our society. And we may have uh, veils of cynicism on the outside, but I do believe, actually, that most human beings are made to care in a very, very powerful way. That caring can lose its foundation inside ourselves when we lose faith in what we deeply care for. And we start to abstract what we care for into what we might call politics and <laughs> perhaps also religion. We take abstract definitions of what it means to be a participating member of society and we give ourselves a political name and then we're angry because what we stand for does not come to pass in the world. You know, whether that's whether we take a stance on the left or we take a stance on the right, yeah. We give abstract theological names to what we feel is true about our world. And then we're angry when God or reality doesn't correspond with the way we've structured our beliefs. But at the bottom of every human being is a deep care about how human beings hold the conversation of life, particularly with this self. And we, we deeply care about what the underlying theological structure of life is. Is there a God? Is there not a God? Does God care for me? How is my everyday life a religious life? Or how is it not a religious life? These all meet at the center of the body in very, very physical emanations of the way we care for other people and the way we want them to care for us. Yeah. So in the abstractions that we make on the outer edge is where we get caught in the abstractions of that energy too. And we start to feel completely helpless. We feel unanchored from that center of care and we lash out in the wrong direction. We should be lashing out towards our own center, yeah. I mean, when I think about moments in my life where I've been angry in the wrong way, and that's caused destruction, either emotional destruction or actual physical destruction, it's always when I've walked past that inner door and gone into the outer world with my helplessness where I start to both lash out and cling on to the world 
in ways that are not good for myself or for others. And what's difficult about going mm. through that inner door to the place where I really care is that it's a place of physical vulnerability, of longing, and it's a place also of having been wounded just by being born into this world. We're born through trauma into this world. The first breath a human being takes is actually a traumatic taking in of what feels like an, a hostile compound, which is oxygen, until that, through your lungs, yeah, until that moment you've simply been breathing through your blood and through the connection of that blood to your mother's blood. Yeah. You've been one person. We come into this world and we find that we go through this, uh, this breaking apart. And the first cry you hear from a child, you know, is not the cry of someone who's glad to be here. It's actually the, it's the cry of someone who's so surprised by what it takes just to take their first breath in the world. And uh, there's a lovely line by, by uh, I think it was Rumi, where he, he says, you come into this life crying with everyone around you laughing uh, <laughs> because they're glad to hear that cry. Mm. And, uh, and the object is to go out of this life laughing uh, with everyone around you crying. But that trauma is right at the center of our body. It's part of also our compassion for everyone else's woundedness in the world. But it's very hard to inhabit. And anything that's not fully integrated into the understanding of the central difficulty of being alive takes forms of power, control, and anger in the outer world. So I do, I do believe, you know, that uh, what we witnessed in the siege and the entrance, you know, of the of what became a mob into the halls of Congress earlier this year is is really a kind of interior incoherence, and they were. They were led by, by supposedly strong outer voices, you know, the voice of a strong man, which uh, human beings have always been drawn to in their own weakness. Uh, but I do believe that the care those people had is just as powerful as any monk who's praying in a, in a monastery, you know, in the mountains of Switzerland. It's just that it had no kind of pathway to find coherence in the outer world. Hmm. Yeah, when I think about my own experience of anger, it seems to always relate to the limits of control. So you know, when I think of, of just how much I, uh, we all try to control our experience, you know, whether we're controlling the, the physical world around us or our own yes. bodies or the behavior of others through persuasion or you know, at times coercion. Yeah or trying to maintain our reputations and watching those get damaged out yes. in the world through happenstance or, or our own stupidity or just the malicious intentions of others. I think what you're pointing at is it's interesting uh, that we get, often we get the most angry about a perceived lack of care in others. Yeah. 
they're not mm. caring about what we I think it's an indication you know the source of our anger actually which is care itself and uh, we spend as you say we spend so much of our life trying to create a kind of homeostasis around us where uh, where we've been kept in the manner to which we want to be accustomed and and the temperature is correct around us and uh, our bed is comfortable and and uh, we get very angry angry quite often and irritable when we're not being kept in that comfort to which we wish and it's interesting that many of our great contemplative disciplines in the invitation to silence create a much more generous and less angry personality yeah that's able to deal with the slings and arrows and irritations and difficulties of everyday life. Yeah, yeah so I, I think we both agree that there are situations where anger is appropriate and not, I mean, it, may, it may best have a, a very short half-life before it opens the door to a more um, reflective uh, and useful and flexible state of mind, but it, it's it, the energy of anger can be certainly energizing in the right direction. Yes. And so we wouldn't want to totally be rid of it. But there, there is a, there's certainly experiences of anger that I've had that strike me as, as intrinsically toxic and, and worth no longer having and, and figuring out how to cancel this, this form of anger in oneself. And it, it seems in those moments that, the, that anger is, might be connected directly to fear um, I'm thinking, I mean, the, the place in, in my own life where I notice this most clearly is in responding to um, those circumstances where one of my daughters has gotten injured, right? Like I said, yes. you know, my daughter will fall off her bike, say, or... Yes. And, and I noticed, you know, quite to my horror, that my first response emotionally to those moments was anger. Right, and it was kind of a yes. it was anger over my own failure to keep her safe. I mean, just an anger based on the fear that the injury could be yes. significant, or, you know, or permanent, yes. or you know, that it's it's very easy to die, right? And, yes. and my my primary job is to keep these girls safe, and so so there there've been you know many moments like this where I've noticed. I mean, and there've been. You know, many accidents, which you know, happily have none of which have entailed any permanent injury to either of them. But you know, I've had a daughter fall down the stairs, you know, head over heels, yes. that would you know, a kind of fall that would kill any stuntman. But because she was, you know, six years old and made of rubber, you know, she was fine. But I mean, just to, to God, witness yes. to witness that, you know, and to feel in myself not an immediate experience of compassion. And yes. comforting concern, but the kind of the hard knot of of anger. Yes, that seems you know totally it seems totally dysfunctional to me, and also a surprise. Yeah, I think what you're pointing towards is that you know when you follow this energy that looks like anger in the outer world back into the body, you find that that source is somehow more. It's more living at the center of the pattern of life, yeah. I mean, one of the things we have to learn, for instance, as a parent, is that you have to let your children be exposed to some of the perils of the world. Otherwise, they'll never find the particular 
right kind of peril that they need to invite into their life if we try and keep them completely safe. I had an interesting uh, parallel, lovely moment of uh, where I suddenly understood something. When I'm I'm at home for a while, I love to garden. And um, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with hoses. Yeah, around a garden. Yes, but, yes. Uh, I've been made angry by hoses. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they tangle around everything. If they will, yeah. if they can, they will. Yeah, and they pull down plants you've just planted. They knock things over. They they kink on themselves. They. Yeah. And I just happened to be reading a biological text about the folding of proteins at the time, and I had this marvelous insight while I was reading it that that so much of 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 the dynamic structure of life is made because things things are made to entangle. Yeah. Mm. And if you didn't have that primary foundational dynamic of entanglement, we actually probably wouldn't be alive to even think about it. Yeah. So many proteins, so many receptors on cells have to do with either physical or electrostatic entanglement. So I really had a physical sense of it and Ever since I've had that, I had that insight, I don't get angry at hoses now (laughs) because I say, if that hose didn't tangle around that that pole, uh, I would not be here to actually witness it. You know, it's the the ability to live at the center of the pattern, the ability, for instance, to be able to realize that we have to give our daughter and our son away to perils over which we have no control, when physically fully understood, allows you to live in a part of your body that doesn't get immediately angry when when one's daughter falls off their bike you know, or tumbles mm. down the stairs. We have a different reaction. We clear the gateway for care to come out, you know, which is what's needed, you know. Yeah to meet our daughter at the bottom of the stairs. And we've all had that experience of someone we deeply care about doing something that could hurt them, which doesn't elicit care from us, but elicits elicits irritation <laughs> because they've, they've made us feel powerless. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's, it's interesting that now that I think about it, I've never done this piece of emotional arithmetic before, but I realized that you know, on, on those occasions where I've seen my wife injure herself, yes. I've, I've never felt angry because there's no yes. implied sense that I should yes. have kept her from doing that, right? Yes. It's like it wasn't my responsibility to yes. make sure that kind of thing never happens to her. But with my daughters, it immediately falls back on my own failure. So it's, um, it's interesting. Just to yeah, notice that so difference. this would be... You know, in the old tradition, this would be seen as a wonderful beckoning invitation because you've identified a you've identified an axis of vulnerability. It's not mm. you have a different vulnerability with your wife, but you've you've identified a really powerful opening, which could be perceived as a wound, but it's actually a doorway. And going through that doorway is is the invitation I tried to make in this essay on anger. Uh, anger is the deepest mm. form of care. Yeah. Well, uh, I can't promise never to uh, murder one of my garden hoses ever again, but uh, <laughs> I, will tr- I will try. <laughs> Just remember, I, I will remember this conversation. <laughs> yes. Well, this leads rather uh, directly to the next 
essay, which is on forgiveness. Yes. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a heartache and difficult to achieve because, strangely, it not only refuses to eliminate the original wound, but actually draws us closer to its source. To approach forgiveness is to close in on the nature of the hurt itself, the only remedy being as we approach its raw center to reimagine our relation to it. Forgiveness is a heartache and difficult to achieve because, strangely, it not only refuses to eliminate the original wound, but actually draws us closer to its source. To approach forgiveness is to close in on the nature of the hurt itself, the only remedy being, as we approach its raw center, to reimagine our relation to it. It may be that the part of us that was struck and hurt can actually never forgive. And that strangely, forgiveness never arises from the part of us that was actually wounded. The wound itself may be the part of us incapable of forgetting and perhaps not actually meant to forget as if like the foundational dynamics of the physiological immune system, our psychological defenses must remember and organize against any future attacks. After all, the identity of the one who must forgive is actually founded on the very fact of having been wounded. Stranger still, it is that wounded, branded, unforgetting part of us that eventually makes forgiveness an act of compassion rather than one of simply forgetting. To forgive is to assume a larger identity than the person who was first hurt, to mature and bring to fruition an identity that can put its arm not only around the afflicted one within, but also around the memories seared within us by the original blow, and through a kind of psychological virtuosity, extend our understanding to one who first delivered it. Forgiveness is a skill, a way of preserving clarity, sanity, and generosity in an individual life, a beautiful way of shaping the mind to a future we want for ourselves, an admittance that if forgiveness comes through understanding, and if understanding is just a matter of time and application, then we might as well begin forgiving right at the beginning of any drama, rather than put ourselves through the full cycle of festering, incapacitation, reluctant healing, and eventual blessing. To forgive is to put oneself in a larger gravitational field of experience than the one that first seemed to hurt us. We reimagine ourselves in the light of our maturity, and we reimagine the past in the light of our new identity. We allow ourselves to be gifted by a story larger than the story that first hurt us and left us bereft. At the end of life, at the end of life, the wish to be forgiven is ultimately the chief desire of almost every human being. 
at the end of life, the wish to be forgiven is ultimately the chief desire of almost every human being. In refusing to wait, in extending forgiveness to others now, we begin the long journey of becoming the person who will be large enough, able enough, and generous enough to receive, at the very end, that absolution ourselves. At the end of life, the wish to be forgiven is ultimately the chief desire of almost every human being. In refusing to wait, in extending forgiveness to others now, we begin the long journey of becoming the person who will be large enough, able enough, and generous enough to receive, at the very end, that absolution ourselves. Forgiveness was begun listening to my daughter practice the piano and sing. There was something about the poignancy of the, of the keys and the voice that brought up a certain kind of woundedness in myself around certain acts I felt had been made against me for which I needed to forgive, but I couldn't quite yet. So I was invited by my daughter's voice, by my daughter's playing in through the door of forgiveness. And towards the very physical sense of that wound, it was almost as if the hands moving across the keys were also taking me across the territory of hurt and difficulty that I'd experienced so many years before. And then I remember I finished the essay on an aeroplane way above the mountains and the clouds on my way to Denver from Seattle, looking down with a great perspective and a great horizon. And I finished it simply by deciding that, considering probably the probable hurt that I had caused so many others in this life, that I just shouldn't be such a flaming hypocrite about needing to forgive. It's hard to think of something that is more important for ourselves personally and for society in general, and yet less thought about and talked about than the act of forgiveness. It's just amazing to me just how, how, how significant this is both in, yes. in, 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 our, in our successfully accomplishing it and in, and in our failures to even try. And yet, it really is not something, I guess, you know, in specific religious traditions, it has a very central place, you know, for instance, in Christianity. But generally speaking, in secular culture, forgiveness is, is not something we really focus on, and yet it's just indispensable. Let's, uh, let's circle in on its significance here. I mean, we, you begin by, by yes. pointing out that it, it isn't the same thing as forgetting, right? It's, it really is. A, no. It's an act of compassion that requires that we, we get closer to the original yes. grievance. Yes. Yeah, the first thing I think of when, when I hear you say it's one of the most significant things in the human life is actually the way it's such a culmination at the end of life. Every deathbed mm. scene has a theme of forgiveness, self-forgiveness or forgiveness of others. Yeah. And many of the religious rituals that we've gone through uh, over the millennia 
on the deathbed have to do with being forgiven or forgiving others, you know. And many people who resort to the deathbed of a loved one are there to be forgiven or to forgive that person as they go. So obviously it is paramount in the priorities and often the hidden priorities of being fully human. And I've often thought, you know, if that actually is the culmination that we're all looking for, then why not short-circuit the usual progression, you know, through being hurt, you know, through the festering and the long road to having the other person earn the forgiveness you're going to give them and then finally Mm. forgiving. What would it look like to, again, turn inward and go to the centre of the body that first experienced the wound? And in that inner woundedness, we find a beautiful kind of powerlessness which needs another arm put around it. Um, I think one of the insights I felt was beneficial to myself in writing this essay was the part of you that was actually hurt it may not be the part of you that actually forgives and certainly from a practical evolutionary point of view that part of you actually has to remember the way it was hurt you know if you were bitten by something out you know in the in the african bush you know millennia ago you had to remember how you were hurt yeah And you had to remember how careful you had to be and how wary you had to be. Well, I think it's the same thing in an emotional dynamic with another person. You must actually, in order to look after yourself, have the part of you that still remembers the way you were hurt so deeply. So it's interesting to think that you must have to call on another more mature part of you that grows around the wound, you know almost the way that we heal a wound physically, we may still have the scar, but we can be whole again. And I think there's something very powerful about remembering, and even through that remembering, creating a different kind of context for what actually happened. Mm. And that can be through generosity and forgiveness. It can be through a sense of humor, And uh, I had a friend once who had uh, the everyday motto, which was a a great foundation for self-compassion and compassion for others. Uh, They said, uh, everyone's trying their very, very best, and it's actually never very, very good. (laughs) (laughs) If you think of of the number of times you yourself have been hurt by others who were actually trying their best, uh, but just did it in a terribly awkward way, yeah. And you think of all the people you've hurt yourself because you were clumsy, you were awkward, you didn't know how to say it, or you didn't actually even know what was going on at the time. Mm. And you were feeling your way in the dark. Yeah. So the ability to go back to that place and forgive yourself. Yeah. I had this I had this moment years and years ago. I was just in my early twenties. I was up in Scotland. I was playing Irish music with a an Irish piper. And we're both poor as church mice, but he was even poorer than I was. We headed south. I was going back to my parents' home in Yorkshire, and he was going on to London. And we had hardly a sou between us, hardly a penny between us. 
But our trains, um, our train arrived in Leeds station in Yorkshire at 12 midnight, and I was taking a short train home. He had to wait a couple of hours for his, and it was absolutely freezing there. I was wearing this really warm sweater that he'd been admiring, actually, and he just had a summer shirt on. That's all he had. And it was absolutely so cold on that platform. And, you know, I, I wanted to give him my sweater and I couldn't do it. <laughs> I loved that sweater. It was so cold on that platform. I wanted to give him uh, my sweater. I couldn't do it because I loved it so much. It was lamb's wool. I'd had it for years. I had so many memories associated with it. And I left him freezing on the platform there. I was getting into a warm train. My dad was picking me up. I regret, I've regretted not giving that sweater to him all my life. I did spend an hour, an hour once with it where I just fully inhabited not giving in the sweater. And ever since, you know, whenever I found myself in that position, I've always been able to give what's needed, even if I've been wearing it and even if I love it. Mm. Because I, in a sense, I went to the part of me that couldn't give. I came to understand, you know, why I couldn't give because I felt as if I never had enough. Yeah. That was mm. the wound in me. And once I'd got into my never had enoughness, another part of me was able to say, you've had more than you need, actually, David, you know, in your life. Mm. <laughs> you may have had certain experiences of never, but actually everything you've actually needed, you've been given in the end. So, so that was another part of me around, around the wound and a moment of forgiveness that suddenly is a platform for for generosity. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not often given to envy, David, but uh, I was struck with a, a moment when I realized that um, I will never be able to utter the phrase when I was up in Scotland playing Irish music with an Irish piper. <laughs> <laughs> that, that will never be my life. Uh, and I, I certainly, I, I, wish I, I wish I had that experience. So, yes, um, that was in my... Uh... My uh, footloose days. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, a story about the sweater is wonderful. It reminds me of a, a story that that uh, my friend Joseph Goldstein has told many times, and he, he tells it in at least one of the talks we've put on uh, Waking Up, where he um, he was a young, young man in Nepal, presumably early in his uh, career as a um, great yogi. It was a guest house of some kind, and and it was like a dormitory where you know yes. travelers could just uh, get an available bed and and sleep for the night. And each bed was supposed to have two blankets on it. And uh, he he got to his bed and it had three, uh, and he was you know comfortably uh, ensconced. And uh, then a little later in the night, uh, another traveler entered and uh, it got to his bunk. And there were no blankets, or maybe there was just one. I forget. Uh, <laughs> people have to consult Joseph's talk to know how grave this offense against generosity was. But and it was just very cold. And Joseph was aware of having an extra blanket, and he was aware that this person was, uh, I think, the person who, had the, who was working there, who saw him to his bed, asked the room, "Were there any extra blankets?" And Joseph kept silent because he was just so, it was so cold and he was so comfortable. 
And he has thought about that moment for decades, you know, with his yes. face burning with shame. And those are just amazing experiences. Yes. And that actually brings us to uh, the essay Confession, because the ability to say exactly the way you were ungenerous, mm. exactly the way you weren't courageous, immediately creates that uh, dynamic the ancient Greeks called enantiodromia, which is once something becomes fully itself, it starts to turn into its opposite. Once you admit your woundedness, you're on the path to healing. Once you admit your, your inability to give, you're on the road to generosity. Um, I've, just, uh, I've just finished a poem for my next volume of poetry, which is called Still Possible, but the poem is actually called Skellig Michael, and it's a confession of my lack of courage in refusing to go out to Skellig Michael by myself on a fishing boat a long time ago on a beautiful, still winter's day. Yeah. And I could have had the whole place to myself, which would have been absolutely remarkable. Hmm. Probably your listeners have seen Skellig Michael at the end of the Star last Star Wars uh, film. Right. And, uh, but it, it's much larger than Star Wars. It looms in the Irish psyche. It's a place of these astonishing beehives, huts, which is uh, besieged by the wild Atlantic and uh, these steep steps which go up. I made all kinds of excuses for not going out. You know, it was uh, it would cost me it would have cost me a hundred pounds, which in those days was a hell of a lot of money to go by myself. I needed to get back to the all, oh, but actually, I was terrified of being on the island by myself. I was just in my early twenties. Hmm. I didn't know what I would do if I confronted the stranger who was myself out on that island. So you, you were terrified of the solitude, not of these challenges of sailing there. Yes, and even though I'd spent a lot of time alone, I was terrified of the particular form of solitude out on that sacred island. Mm -hmm. Sitting down to the poem, to write the poem, allowed me to confess fully, which is to profess, actually, your the fullness of what you felt. And I was suddenly able to make to make friends again with that young man who was so afraid yeah, and who couldn't admit to being so afraid. Yeah. But also what I really understood was, you know, it took me a hell of a lot of energy to get to the little fishing port. I'd hitchhiked for days. I'd spent mm. so much money to get there. I'd, it was the culmination of my... And I refused to go that last mile. Well... The regret that I've carried for not going out to Skellig Michael, I realized, you know, I wrote it in the poem itself, that it had allowed me to complete so many last miles since, yeah, mm. because I was never going to let it happen again, actually, where I got to the place where it had spent, I'd spent so much energy to get to that last step, and then I'd refused the harvest of the moment, yeah. Hmm. We're all, you know, presented with harvests, uh, the harvest in a love relationship, the harvest of being a father, or that we refuse at the last moment because we don't know what we would do with that untrammeled experience, actually. It might be a full grief or a full joy, but partly because the fullness of any dynamic, you know, in that, again, returning to that beautiful Greek word, in enterodromia, the fullness of something leads to its complete disappearance, yeah. And the meeting of this other person who you've now got to get to know 
which is your new self on the other side of what was previously a boundary and a fearful distance. I love the framing you give to forgiveness here as a skill and as a way of preserving our clarity, sanity, and generosity. Yes. And its direct connection to maturity. Yes. Yeah, I think your phrase here is, we reimagine ourselves in the light of our maturity. Yes. Which actually brings us quite directly to the third essay I want to talk about, which is maturity. Mm-hmm. Yes, which sounds like a really tedious subject, actually. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> we got to get there somehow. But it's, yeah. but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mention maturity to a 15-year-old. It does sound like the land of boredom, but uh, yes. No, it's its own last-mile problem. Yes, exactly, yeah. Maturity. Maturity is the ability to live fully and equally in multiple contexts. Most especially the ability, despite our many griefs and losses, to courageously inhabit the past, the present, and the future all at once. Maturity is the ability to live fully and equally in multiple contexts, most especially the ability, despite our many griefs and losses, to courageously inhabit the past, the present, and the future all at once. The wisdom that comes from maturity is recognized through a disciplined refusal to choose between or isolate three powerful dynamics that form human identity. What has happened, what only looks as if it is happening now, and then what is about to occur. Immaturity is shown by making false choices, living only in the past, or only in the present, or only in the future, or even living only two out of the three. Maturity is not a static, arrived platform, a golden epoch from where life is viewed from a calm, untouched oasis of wisdom, but the dissolution of living elemental frontiers between what has happened, what is happening now, and the consequences of our past, first imagined anew, and then lived into the waiting future. Maturity is the breakdown of elemental frontiers between different parts of ourselves, between different epochs of our life, between life and death, between the part of us that has been a fine, upstanding citizen and the darker, helpless parts of us that have caused harm and damage. Maturity is the time when these tidal forces meet and break apart our life, making one life out of our regrets, our self-compassion, and our forgiveness, forged into a future made real by a radical change in our behavior. Real maturity can only be sustained by real silence, by a daily discipline of silence, and an inhabitation of spaciousness, a foundational giving away, Maturity is the discipline of giving up and giving away to see what is left and what is real. 
Maturity calls us to risk ourselves as much as we did in our immaturity. But for a bigger picture, a larger horizon for a powerfully generous outward incarnation of our inward qualities, and not for gains that make us smaller, even in the winning. Our previous stage of immaturity always beckons, offering a false haven and false accounting, an ersatz safety in one state or the other, a hiding place and a disappearance in the past, a false isolation of the present or an unobtainable, sure prediction of the future. But maturity beckons also, asking us to be larger, more fluid, more elemental, less cornered, less unilateral, a living conversational intuition between the inherited story the one we are privileged to inhabit, and the one, if we are large enough and broad enough, movable enough, and even here enough, just astonishingly about to occur. Maturity beckons also, asking us to be larger, larger, more fluid, more elemental, less cornered, less unilateral, a living, conversational intuition between the inherited story, the one we are privileged to inhabit, and the one, the one if we are large enough and broad enough, movable enough and even here enough, just astonishingly about to occur. So uh, you describe maturity as an awareness of multiple contexts, and especially with respect to time. Yes. This is a kind of counterpoint to a very common association with all things contemplative, meditation, and yes. any other way of magnifying the well, one's felt presence in the world. It's, it all seems to entail a focus on the now, and I often get yes. questions, sometimes fairly tortured, around the seeming contradiction between being in the now and planning intelligently for the future and yes. uh, and you know I, I don't see a contradiction but I'll, I'll grant that if one talks at great length about the primacy of the present moment and the the illusoriness of past and future or that they only exist they only ever really arrive in the present it's, it's easy to convey the sense that the now is all there is, and it's all that uh, we need ever take stock of. But unless one is going to live out one's, the rest of one's life in a monastery or in a cave, that can't be the basis of a fully integrated, intelligent, creative life that has all of its priorities straight. So how do you think about maturity with respect to the variable of time? Yes, yeah, there is a misleading emphasis on on nowness uh, these days. It's very fashionable, and of course, the famous book "Be Here Now," mm -hmm. Ramdas. But I do think it's uh, misguided. It could be said better, because when I I do believe when you inhabit the now fully, that nowness actually extends into your past and out into the future at the same time. 
you start to inhabit the long body in a way back into the origins you know and stories through which you've come which get recontextualized by that presence so a story you thought you were telling is in your past is actually untrue you find you just it hasn't been told in a larger way and in telling it in a larger way you realize that's also a meta story and it's probably going to be replaced in the future so i do think that the, the maturity is the ability to live in the past fully in the present and in the horizon that's drawing you all at the same time to inhabit them without choosing between them to create this long body that that holds them together so you have an understanding a powerful understanding of the mythic nature of the journey that's brought you to this what only looks like the present which is always precipitating into the future yes it's just a wave you're riding yeah but behind that wave is this ocean uh the ocean of the past the ocean of your humanity the ocean of of your collective inherent inheritance and it's breaking on the shoreline and and then beyond that is this horizon that draws you and the ability not to choose between them creates what i think is a live frontier human being in which the past is always being recast mm. by your the frontier experience you know with the horizon that's drawing you with the with the present and and the future so the ability to live in all three at once we need a better word than maturity to describe that but i think it's a good um and when you look at it you know someone who's wise is always able to draw on the stories of the past and often the best wisdom is actually is actually dispensed through storytelling abraham lincoln was a great storyteller if you see spielberg's picture you know the, he mm. emphasizes lincoln's storytelling as his way of getting his way actually mm. <laughs> also of of really always creating the greatest context you can for everyone present around the table and part of that greater context is always reminding of them of their humanity yeah so uh, yeah i i, yeah. I agree that the, this term maturity is is fairly lifeless for people and it's um i i mean but there are, there are concepts we associate with it which are are certainly more inspiring i mean something like wisdom right i mean what what yes, does what yeah. does the wisdom of maturity consist of and it's uh, yes and, uh, and of course part of the joy of the of writing the essay was to give that lifeless word some life i yeah. mean i actually that was a window i was throwing a stone at when i wrote wrote the essay to yeah. to break open our understanding of of that word because you do of course want maturity if you're in a workplace you want you want to have maturity amongst the people you're working with not its opposite yeah if you're going for someone for advice you want some maturity on their part and when you're confronted with the difficulties of life you want a little bit of maturity and and your old self to at the same time so yeah, there's a phrase you use um the discipline of giving up and giving away to see what is real which is uh, yeah 
which is certainly yeah, the better part difficult. of wisdom. I mean, no, noticing yes. when you're holding pointlessly onto suffering, yeah. you know, or you know, anger, as we've already discussed. Exactly. And, and forgiveness is the the antithesis of that. Yes. It's. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of a, a flexibility and a a no longer being taken in by the by certain illusions that are that are harder to cut yes. through often earlier in life. I mean, the, like the, the illusion of sunk cost, right? You know, like that you're just throwing good money after bad or the, the, the yes. feeling that you have to keep doing something because you've spent so long going down that path. It's a, uh, I think... Yeah, the be- giving away is a great thing for you to emphasize there. Yes, it's... Uh, I'm just, uh, I don't know if you've read this recent book by uh, James Nestor called Breath. No, oh yeah, no, I've, I've, um, I'm aware of it, yeah. Yeah, stunning, and uh, particularly about the physiology that lies behind the nose and the in-breath. But one of the interesting, uh, very practical pieces of advice he gives, coming from all of our great breathing traditions within our contemplative lineages, you know, is is we don't we don't breathe out enough. You know, hmm. we're pulling the breath in before we've actually given it out fully. And it has enormous psychological and physiological uh, consequences, which he talks about in the book. But it's a, it's an absolute mirror and representation of what you were just mentioning. Yeah. That the ability to give to the last, to have nothing held back, it's always been prized in human society, in, in an individual human being. Generosity, you know, nothing held back, everything given. And that is seen as a saintly quality for good reason, because it's it's something we want ourselves, actually. So, I mean, the practical advice in the book is to breathe out for 5.5 seconds. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the, the received wisdom, yeah. Which is actually quite a long time, if, if you look at the way yeah. your, your breath is normally structured. But that 5.5 seconds represents giving out beyond the boundary of where you would normally give. And that's a physiological representation of it. Yeah, I don't know if he describes it this way in the book, but there is a, um, there's a, a, a parasympathetic response if you, if you just consciously extend, you know, slow down and extend your exhalation. And, and certainly 5.5 seconds sounds like a long one. It's, um, it, it does invoke a, a parasympathetic response. Which, yes, um, yeah. which calms everything down. It's a good, it's a good antidote to anxiety and, and whatever else ails you. you know, Lovely. On side. Yes, yes. Well, David, this has been uh, yet another wonderful installment from you. I have a... Um, I enjoy, I enjoy the uh, uh, delving together very much each time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As I said, we, we have several new essays from you, or at least new from the point of view of waking up, added to the app now, and... Uh, those can be found in uh, your track on Consolations. So thank you again, David. I look forward to our next talk. Lovely. Thank you, Sam. All the best.